Hey guys, and welcome back to the Crim Podcast, where we interview guest speakers about criminal justice topics. My name is Tamika, and I will be your host. Thank you so much for joining us today. We will start this podcast today, guys, by paying our respects to and acknowledge the Awabakal people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we live. And we acknowledge and extend these respects to all elders, past, present, and emerging. Also, just like usual, I would like to provide a quick disclaimer to warn that today, like any other week, we discuss interesting but sensitive topics that some of you may find to be disturbing or maybe even a little distressing. Today, we are talking about things such as clandestine grave sites, the case of the Beaumont children, and methods of excavating a grave. So if you find that you are impacted by any issues we discuss today, we encourage you to employ the free counselling services provided by the uni. Or alternatively, there's Headspace in Newcastle City. You can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14 for crisis support. So today we are joined by Victoria. Or Tori. Is Tori okay? Yeah, Tori's fine. How are you doing today? <laughs> Pretty good. Good. So today we'll be focusing in on your PhD studies, including the 3D documentation of clandestine graves. But first, I think we would all like to get to know you a little bit better, if that's okay. So where did you go to university and what did you study? I did both my undergraduate and master's degrees in Canada um, at the University of Toronto. Uh, They were both in forensic anthropology. Um, So I did an undergraduate and a master's. So... How did you get involved with clandestine grave discovery? In my fourth year, I took a course on 3D mapping of crime scenes, and we had to choose a paper topic. And because I'm in anthropology, I wanted to pick a topic that was anthropologically related, and all the others were more related to uh, blood spatter and like uh, shooting reconstructions. The only one that was anthropological related was clandestine graves. So I was like, all right, I'll pick that topic, wrote a random paper on it. The prof came to me after and was like, we should do this research. We should actually do it in the field and then we'll publish it. And it kind of just started from there. (laughs) So for some of us who who don't know, would you mind defining what a clandestine grave is? Sure. Uh, Clandestine graves are hidden and illegal burials, often related to criminal acts. So when someone gets killed, um, one of the ways you can dispose of a body is burying them. Okay. So we'll dive into your research shortly that you mentioned before there, but could you tell us what the catalyst was for this research other than just, oh, I'm going to pick that one? Um, Well, the research that I'm doing here at the uni um, started a bit differently um, because I had experience with looking at clandestine graves and looking at different ways to document them and excavate them. I had reached out to Xanthi Mallet here um, explaining my interests and she had a project that was ready to go that came out of the Beaumont investigation. Um, so it's not quite looking at documenting graves, it's more looking at finding the graves. Um, but it was kind of fate that Xanthi and I came together at the time that we did and now I'm here. Of course, so you're working on that currently with Xanthi? Yeah. Wow, okay, because the Beaumont case is obviously one of Australia's biggest cases. Mm -hmm. And so how have you been going with that so far? So I'm not specifically involved in the Beaumont investigation. Like I wasn't on 
the scene, yep. obviously, because it was two years ago. Um, but my research project came out of it. So uh, during the Beaumont investigation, they needed to locate this burial, but they had a very large stretch of land. Um, so Xanthi employed a geophysicist from Flinders University. His name is Dr. Ian Moffat. Um, and so he used two geophysical techniques to, it's kind of like remote sensing, and they were looking for the graves without actually digging for them because digging is expensive and takes a lot of time. So once they realized that those techniques worked, then she decided that it was something that should be explored further, which is my PhD project. Okay, amazing. So yeah. we'll jump into that, actually. So um, you touched on what a clandestine grave or burial is, but why are they unique and why are they important? I looked at the stats the other day. There's over 2,600 missing, long-term missing people in Australia and more everywhere else in the world. Um, and it's reasonably, reasonable to assume that they are going to be buried. It's a, I don't want to say easy way, but it's uh, one of the ways you can dispose of a body. Um, and it's one of the ways that is very difficult to find uh, because the only way to actually find them is to dig for them, um, which takes a lot of manpower, um, takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort, it's costly. Um, so it's, from a criminal's perspective, it's a, a good way to dispose of a body and a good way um, to potentially have it not found for a while. Sure, sure. It seems like an easy solution if something's happened in that respect. Mm -hmm. So what kind of evidence can be found in a clandestine grave sort of thing? Inside or when I'm looking for the grave? Either or. Up to you. <laughs> so when you're looking for the grave, you can look for different uh, characteristics. So if you think about it, digging a grave, you have to actually dig into the ground so you're disturbing the surrounding soil, um, which includes the vegetation. So you can look for things um, like a change in vegetation. You can look for things like no vegetation at all, whereas around this particular area, there's a ton of vegetation. Um, you can look for mounds, depressions, leaves dig uh, into the soil, not sitting on top. So there's like little indicators that you wouldn't obviously notice just walking through, but if you're specifically looking for them, there's certain things that um, give you an idea that there might be something there. Um, and then once you decide to excavate, there can be literally anything. In the grave, I consulted on a case back in Canada where we found like six sets of animal remains in a garbage bag, just randomly in a garbage bag. So How random. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I mean, you can find weapons, you can find anything, really, any, anything related to the case or non-related to the case, you can find. Of course. So animal, uh, animal remains, is that a common occurrence, would you say, that would maybe throw investigators off? Um, I mean, it depends on what the criminal was trying to do. Some people just bury their pets in their backyard or anywhere that they think people won't find them, um, or trying to dispose of them, right? That's a pretty good way to dispose of a pet. Um, so finding them in the ground is not unheard of. Um, but I mean, it's it's important to be able, if you're digging them up and you find them, the animal remains, it's important to be able to differenti differentiate the two and say, oh, this is animal, so it might not be important. Whereas if you find human remains, it's a lot more important. <laughs> of course, for sure. 
So you mentioned in your research that body positioning within a grave can highlight important case information. Would you mind giving us a few examples of this? Yeah, so it can it can tell you um, what led up to the event. It can even go as far as to give a little bit of intent. Um, so if you find someone who is bound, um, that could indicate that it was premeditated, that they had the means to bound, bind them. Um, if they are found in anatomical position, so um, in the way that we are, like those bones are in our body now, yep. um, you can you can deduce that they were like they they died there and they were buried like that, not died somewhere else and then moved. If you find the remains kind of scattered all over the place, that's a good indicator that they were buried somewhere else or killed somewhere else and then moved to the grave, and that can help you decide that okay, then now I need to find my primary crime scene. Um, there's even literature on uh, religious burials. Uh, different religions will bury their bodies in different ways. So like the head facing certain ways will uh, be significant to certain religions. Wow, okay. And stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, so it actually goes deeper than just like, oh, this is a crime scene and this just so happens to be that way. But you can find meaning in the actions of these people and even a religious perspective. Yeah. All right, okay. So... Are there any interesting things, maybe like a fun fact or something that you could tell us about your experiences with excavating skeletons? Because it's it's one of those topics that really immerses people mm-hmm. because of how, I guess, creepy, interesting. I mean, it's science-based. It's so interesting and it captures the public mind really easily. So what are some things that you can give us some insight into your experiences? So I haven't done that many actual investigations yet. <laughs> um Oh, sorry, not investigations, excavations yep. yet. Um, I guess when I was in third year, we did a field school. So my teacher would actually go out to bury bodies, uh, fake cast skeletons, yep. um, including a fetal pig so we could find like decomposition. Um, and then for two weeks, we went out and did the whole investigation. So we got the police information. We had to find the grave. We had to clear the, the scene. We had to excavate. And then during the year, we would analyze the remains that we found. And our grave had this giant, like, log through it that <laughs> stopped us from being able to see the remains. And it almost stopped us from digging there. Because we're like, well, no one would... In our minds, we're thinking these are simulated graves, like this isn't a real thing. So no one would bury a body, put this giant stick on top, and then cover it. We were wrong. At the end of the year, they showed like this blooper video of the people actually burying the bodies. And they took a stick that was like my wingspan and like this thick, (laughs) put it on top of the remains and expected us to dig it out. They thought it was funny. I did not think it was that funny. <laughs> I wouldn't think that's that funny either. That just sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> but I mean, that could happen in real life if, a, if an offender is trying to throw people off. They, if there's actually thought put into burying these bodies, that could actually happen. So it's got to keep that in mind. Of course. I mean, the weirdest <laughs> things can happen. So... Alrighty, well, we'll go into your study that compares the manual measurements of a skeleton using trilateration, the use of a digital scanner, 
and the use of a total station. So we'll unpack what all of that is first, <laughs> if that's okay with you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about trilateration and that method? Trilateration is measuring a skeleton or anything, measuring something uh, with three points. So you have one measuring tape on the uh, x-axis, one measuring tape on the y-axis, and then you have two measuring tapes connecting to one point. Yep. So I'm measuring distances and angles to then map it on a piece of paper or a computer. Um, and that's considered manual measurements. That's what most people do in the field now. They don't use any fancy technologies, techniques. It's just like measuring tapes and writing it down. Okay. So would you mind telling us maybe some pros and cons of the manual methods? Sure. So it's accepted. So it's always accepted in court. Um, you won't get any backlash from the lawyers about it. Um, it's commonly used. It's been tested. Uh, but it can take, it needs at least two people. You can't do it by yourself. Um, if you're learning, it needs like five people. It's very, it's very difficult to learn because you have to kind of coordinate where everyone's going and you have to be really precise with the two measuring tapes and it's a lot. And if you're measuring distances, so if you think about a grave, we're not measuring the surface, we're measuring the subsurface. So we can't bring the measuring tapes down into the grave. We have to level them and then drop what we call a plumb bob. It's just like this weighted thing on a string and then you have to measure from that point. Like it's, there's a whole lot involved with manual <laughs> measurements. If you're good at it, it's easy. You can two people can get it done in like 20 minutes. And, sure, but it's it's difficult to learn and um, takes a lot of, I would say, a lot more manpower. Alrighty, so that sounds like a really complex manual method. So. What about in complex environments then, like on the side of a cliff or in a location where there's really dense vegetation, what would we do then? So we would move towards 3D technologies, wouldn't we? If you have them available to you, um, absolutely. Uh, total stations are really nice because you can set them up and you it's a digital, it's a laser that reaches out to the point and then however long it takes to come back is the distance. So it digitally measures the, the distance. Um, so that one's easier. You can do, you can do it with one person. Um, but those are expensive. You don't always have them handy. And to set up the total station, it has to stay in one spot. You cannot move it. You cannot touch it. Otherwise, it'll throw off the measurements. So you have to put it in a place that you can capture all of the measurements. So if it's on a cliff side, you can't use a total station. Right. Because okay. you won't be able to get all the measurements. So ideally from where you place the total station is where you will get everything that you require. Hopefully. I mean, okay. that's the that's goal. That's ideal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's not often ideal, isn't it? It depends on if it's a flat terrain, total stations are awesome. Uh, if you see road workers, they use total stations all the time to map and measure roadways because a lot of them are flat and it, like, it can reach over, I want to say hundreds of kilometers or hundreds of meters. Um, so it can reach far distances, but on a flat plane. So if your crime scene's flat, absolutely use a total station. Okay. And so what about the digital scanner? Instead, you use the Faro X330 laser in your research? Yeah. So the Faro is a terrestrial laser scanner. It sends out um, lasers pretty much, millions, of, and it captures millions and millions of points in seconds. Um, and it's, it's taking pictures, it's taking measurements, it's 
um, doing all of that on its own, essentially. So you just press a button and let it go. Um, some scans can be as quick as five minutes and some scans can be as long as 20 minutes, depending on you, the resolution and what you're trying to capture and if you're inside or outside. Um, but again, with a, a laser scanner, um, you want to put it in a place that's ideally going to capture most of it. But the good thing about a laser scanner is that you can do multiple scans. So if I have a, a grave in the center, I could do four different scans around, and then I can use software to piece those together. So I don't have to, it, it's okay to move, like it won't upset the measurements like a total station would if I move the machine. Okay, so that software actually takes us on to the next question, which is, um, I'm going to ask you what is photogrammetry? And so if you wouldn't mind going into that, that would be awesome. Photogrammetry is another way to create 3D models. Um, it's taking a series of photographs, a series of overlapping photographs of an object or a scene or an area, and then piecing them together and making a 3D model. What can you do with that information, pretty much? With... With a 3D model, you can do anything you want. You can display it. It can be just something visually pleasing. Um, it can be used in court um, because you're not actually allowed to bring, like if you're looking at human remains, for instance, you're not allowed to bring the remains into court as evidence. Um, so, but if it's something that the jury or the judge needs to see, you can show them a 3D model. Um, you can do any measurement you want. If you think about, if you think about the skull, right? Like it's kind of like a bowl. And if you were wanting to measure the volume of that, you can't really do that without pouring water yep. into the bowl, which would damage evidence and you're not allowed to do. So with 3D measurements or 3D models, I can digitally measure that without actually disrupting the skeletal remains at all. Okay. So it just maintains the integrity of the evidence pretty yeah. much. Would you say that these the method of photogrammetry is popular amongst crime scene investigators? It depends on who you ask and where you are. Um, I used to go to a conference every year that was uh, filled with cops that would use 3D techniques, and they loved it. So if you went to their jurisdictions, loved it, would use it all the time. You can go to other jurisdictions where they're not as popular. And I know there's a lot of police units that have the technology to do it, but they don't, they didn't pay for the training, so they don't use it. So it's just sitting in their storage room. Um, 3D technologies, although I think they're excellent and they have great merit, um, most people's initial reaction is, why would I change the way that I do things? If I've done it this way, like if we're looking at documenting a grave, it's not very popular in forensic anthropological circles to use 3D techniques because people's argument is that, well, we've used these techniques for so long and they work, why would I change it? But your research indicates that it's so much better at maintaining evidence and its integrity. So is that not the next step? Yes. For us? And a lot of a lot of skeletal collections are now going digital, which will be really good because we'll have to come up with techniques to analyze them digitally. Um, but it's it's a slow transition. And I know when I was trying to get my research published, one of the biggest um, comments I got back was, why would I go the extra step to uh, get this 3D model when I can just do it the old way kind of thing? 
Um, and it's, it's a really hard argument to make because you're right. The old way works. It's great. It's accepted in court and it works. But this way could potentially be better and or the same. But there are these added benefits that it, it's, it's, a, it's a hard line to walk and it's hard to convince people sometimes to use 3D technologies because um, they are pretty set in their ways. But I mean, to each their own. You can use whatever you want as long as you get results. Of course, but then it sort of seems like if they're posing the question, why would I change? It's like, well, why wouldn't you if it may benefit and change the way that we excavate skeletons? It's true, but change is not everyone's favorite thing. Sure, sure. So it's, you know what, if you sometimes you find someone who's really keen on learning about it and they want you to teach them and they're really interested, that's great. Some people just really are opposed to it. And those kind of people, you just say, okay, you do you. <laughs> I'm going to do my way. <laughs> yeah, okay. Hey, that's interesting because yeah. I guess we've always sort of been surrounded by people that want to contribute to the criminal justice system in and improve it because that's what we're studying criminology for. Mm-hmm. So for people to be rather regressive in their methods in certain particular parts it's really interesting so the other thing you have to think about because our end goal is bringing it to court um newer methods 3d methods are not as um tested as our old methods um so it goes to question reliability exactly so if i'm going to decide what technique to use i'm not going to chance it on a technique that might not hold up in court so the first step to well, second step to getting 3D techniques used is to actually get them tested and tested and tested on, in an anthropological sense, on different skeletal collections, um, like different um, ancestries, different ages, different sizes, different everything. Get it tested as much as you can so when you bring it to court, you can show without a shadow of a doubt that this technique actually works. Sure, because sometimes you can put in all the effort and then in court it may still fall over. So you want to remove that possibility as much as you possibly can. Exactly. So would this be, is this the direction that your research is going into? Normalising these methods? Um, It's definitely something that I want to continue working on. It's not directly related to my PhD research um, because I'm not looking at, my research is just looking at finding the remains, not actually analyzing them in any sort of capacity. Um, But I would like to, because I've done a ton of research on it already, I would like to continue um, working on it on the side and trying to normalize that for our our court system. In this era, obviously, technology is ever-changing. There's now the use of commercial drones. Do you see that a lot in crime scenes? Again, it's a new thing, and it depends on who you go to and what who you're working with. I know a bunch of cops that love their drones and use it. Um, I have a colleague who has a great drone and does a ton of research with it. Doesn't always use it in cases, because again, it's not tested so much that it could hold up. But it's definitely an opportunity. It's great for quickly surveying large areas. Like, you're not going you're not looking inside the ground like you're not getting the subsurface but you can get a a quick scan of the surface and then you can say oh well that looks a little that looks like there could be a grave there that looks important let's mark that off so instead of having people walk 
acres and acres and acres, I can fly a drone over it quickly and say, okay, these are the areas that we should walk through. Okay. So for efficiency, that's what you would use it for. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. But like you said, still a bit questionable if you were to put it in the court context. Right. Okay. So we'll just swing back to your comparison between the three different methods and just as a reminder, the trilateration, the total station and the laser scanner. Can you discuss how that went for you, that comparison? So no surprises, the total station, uh, not total station, the laser scanner um, was the easiest to use and um, the comparisons between that and the total station were the the smallest. Um, But for that research, you have to keep in mind, we didn't get a ground zero measurement. So we couldn't, I can't tell you which technique is the most accurate. The only thing I can do is tell you the difference between two techniques. So the difference between manual and the total station was almost a centimeter versus the difference between the total station and the laser scanner was a millimeter. So the difference between those measurements is not significant, but um, if you're trying to be as accurate as possible when you're doing crime scene work, that's important. Um, So I can't tell you which one is the most accurate. I would say the total station, uh, keep saying total station, the uh, laser scanner is the easiest to use and it's the fastest and you do get accurate measurements. We do know that. Um, But again, it's expensive. So it's a give and take it's whoever if, if you're a lone researcher like me I won't don't have thirty thousand dollars that I can just go and buy a laser scanner but if I worked for a big company that or like the, the police like they have a budget for that kind of stuff they can afford that so it, it just it just depends what you can afford okay and would you say that in the Australian context um the police force is utilizing technologies like this or are they introducing it yep so they actually have an imaging department Um, that often go to crime scenes with all sorts of different 3D technologies to generate models of the crime scenes. Okay, so how would you compare the technology we employ in, say, Australia comparatively to the United States or Europe? Like, is there much difference or are we all heading in the same direction? So I couldn't tell you a thing about Europe. Oh, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the US, it is... It is used. I do know that. Um, But if you think of the police forces in the U.S., there are so many jurisdictions. In Australia, they have, like, New South Wales police, and that's it in New South Wales, right? And then they have federal police that govern everyone. But in New South Wales, you only have one police force. In the states, you would have county, state, probably three other levels, and then federal. So there's different levels of police forces that will have different fundings. So I'm sure federal police, I'm sure they can afford that. And I do know some police officers that work in the states that have, um, that whatever jurisdiction they work in, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but they do employ these techniques and they do have it. It is used. I couldn't tell you if everyone does that or how common it is. Um, In Canada, it's not very common. Um, We do, like my colleague, he has his own company if he does like private contract work so they'll call him and he'll go out to scan a crime scene or whatever um our police forces don't commonly use 
3D techniques. They love the research. They love helping students at our uni with the research, but they don't often employ these 3D techniques in their practice. Again, just because they don't have the training, they aren't bothered, and or they know it might not hold up in court. There's a whole slew of reasons. So I some places and jurisdictions use them a lot and some don't use them at all. It's just it's kind of hit or miss. Okay, so it's always just dependent on the people that you're looking at at that point. Exactly. Alrighty, so just as a last sort of question, we're dying to know, on a typical day, are you just sort of called up by the authorities to locate a body in like a suspected area? So me personally, no, um, because I'm still just a student. When I was back home, it was my supervisor who was called up. She um, She was the forensic anthropologist for a certain area. So when the coroner got a call about a body or a potential search, she would be called and then she would ask a grad student to come with her. So I did consult on some cases with her. Um, I haven't done cases here yet. I mean, if Dr. Malik gets called on cases, maybe she'll take me along with her. Um, But I personally wouldn't get called just because I'm a student. Sure. But other, I know there is a forensic anthropologist for New South Wales, I would say. So she would be the one to get called. And then if she needs help, she would ask. Yeah, okay. So how were those experiences when your supervisor would take you along? They were pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I have to be careful when I say that because of the nature of of what we're looking for. But I find it so rewarding to be able to help these families bring closure, right? Like I was on a case where we were looking for a woman who had some... Um, a few mental health issues um, and I guess she had walked off and it had been years we finally went out to search for her um, as the student in me was saying it would be a great learning experience if I found human remains but then the practitioner in me was like well I want to find the remains I want to bring closure but I find it so rewarding um, even just being a student being able to bring closure to these families they have long-term loved ones that have been missing and for us to be able to tell them that we found them at least um, brings resolution to them and that's really really important to me the nature of our work is really sad um, and I often find myself having to detach um, but big picture it's always worth it how do you manage to cope with things like that because like you said it can be very intense and it isn't an easy subject I look at it as it's it's a job. So I have to be professional. I have to um, do the best work that I can do. And if I'm emotionally involved, that doesn't always happen. Um, so it's pr- just emotional detachment. I'm there for a job. I'm doing my best. I'm getting it done. And then I'm leaving. I'm not thinking about who the victim was or who their family was or any of that because then I mean, it's sad, right? Like these are these are missing people. These are dead people that left loved ones that are sad about them and missing them. And if you start thinking about that, you also get sad. <laughs> Just emotional detachment to remain that that level of professionalism. For sure. Well, that was all incredibly interesting, Tori. Thank you so much for your time today and for letting us get to know you. Um, Your field of study is incredibly fascinating and we're really lucky to have been able to learn from you today. 
Thank you. That's so sweet. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for today, guys. Thank you so much for joining me in the second episode of the Crim Podcast. Make sure you stay tuned for our next episode to be released on the Friday of week 11. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to the Crim Podcast, joined by Victoria Veritowski and interviewed by your host, Tamika Hillebrand. This episode was made possible by Corey De Pasquale, who is the editor, producer, and music composer for this episode. I would like to extend a big thanks to Joseph De Pasquale for providing the podcasting equipment, and big thanks to Isabella Krebert for her administrative assistance and support. Thank you so much for listening.